Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In today's episode of The Bell Tale, Mucky Marty, the story behind Northern Ireland's most prolific pimp and the hundreds of women he exploited to build his seedy escort empire. 59-year-old Martin Heaney's been given a five-year jail sentence for controlling prostitution, trafficking women for sexual exploitation and voyeurism. For decades, Martin Heaney's sex crimes have featured in the news. So how did he evade the authorities for so long? Heaney admitted charges relating to 12 female victims, many of whom were said to be extremely vulnerable. And did his recent sentencing offer any justice to the hundreds of at-risk women he trafficked for his own gains. Martin Heaney first appeared in court in October 2019 and because of time already spent on remand is expected to be set free from prison later today. Here to discuss with me is the Belfast Telegraph security correspondent, Alison Morse. Alison, you've covered the case of Mucky Marty extensively. Going back to the beginning, for those who don't know, who exactly is he and how did he get this moniker? So Martin Haney was originally from West Belfast. He was actually a bus driver at one point. And he first came to the attention, I suppose, of the tabloid press about 15 years ago. And what he was doing then is he was using um, some newspapers which carried those sort of personal ads at the back of them to advertise for women for a cleaning company. But when the women who applied for the ad went for the ad, it turns out that he wanted them, at first he was telling them he wanted to do topless cleaning. He wanted them to clean his house um, and then he said he could get them work for other people cleaning houses naked and then it was up to them whether they wanted to have sex with the people whose houses they were cleaning so some of the women obviously then reported this back to journalists said do you realise what this man's actually advertising for and there was a bit of an expose done on them then and then he sort of fell off the radar for a while but what we know since then is he sort of upped his game and obviously the rise in social media the rise in those escort websites all of that meant that he realised that there was a lot of money to be made from very vulnerable women and women who were sometimes in quite desperate situations to be exploited in the sex industry. And he had a notion of himself that he was going to be some sort of, you know, super pimp, some, you know, Hugh Hefner type character, some porn king. This was what he thought. Um, when in, in reality, you know, the, the women he was preying on were people who were in desperate situations. A lot of them were young women who either came from a car system, you know, women who had drug and alcohol problems, all sorts of issues. So you can see why he quickly developed a reputation and was quite well known in those sort of circles as, as someone who could provide women for those, you know, for sexual services. And in terms of those women, I know you've said they were vulnerable and came from quite desperate situations. How do you think 
he hooked them for so long. And how do you think, like you're saying there, this has been going on as far back as 15 years ago, maybe even before that. How do you think he got away with it for so long? Yeah, so I, I spoke to some of the women after he was convicted. Some of them didn't, didn't want to speak at all. And, you know, remember he was convicted of offences that related to a dozen women, related to 12 women. But there were hundreds of women and some of them didn't want to cooperate with police for obvious reasons. Some of them didn't want to make statements. Some of them have killed themselves since then. And, you know, they're, they're, the police found recordings of them but weren't able to trace them. Um, so the woman that I spoke to, one of them bizarrely was approached by him in Castle Court as she was out shopping and he handed her a flyer for what was a kissagram business that he had registered on Company's house. Um, they asked, did she want to come and do like kissagram and it involved a bit of stripping. Um, she was with a friend who was very desperate for money, was homeless at that time and they had responded to it and quickly got caught up in it. The other young woman I spoke to was in a terrible situation and she was actually in the city centre sitting with a few friends who were homeless basically on the ground because they were put at their hostel during the day and so they just killed time in the town and he was approaching women there which you could clearly see these were women who you know were in difficult situations offering them money to do what started off sounding like something that was quite simple you know you go to a party you know you'll dress up you know as a naughty nurse or whatever you'll do a little bit of stripping and you'll get paid x y and z but it very quickly became evident that that wasn't what he was hooking them in to do. And remember, if you're someone who is in a desperate situation, one of the women I spoke to said at that time her only possessions were a plastic bag full of clothes. That was all she owned. She was moving from one place to another. Her mother had been um, put into a mental institute because she had had a, a nervous breakdown and had addiction problems. Her father had taken his own life. She had no backup. She had no family. She had no friends. And she genuinely needed the money. What they had said then was as it escalated and he was asking to do more and more extreme things, there was always a promise of extreme amounts of money, but it never materialised. I mean, one of these women told me that she stripped in front of a room of up to a dozen men and she got £20 for it at the end of the night, you know, being pawed over by drunken men, and that was what she was paid by him for that. So he was preying on people who didn't have, I suppose we talk about people who have agency and have autonomy and have a way of sticking up for themselves. He obviously didn't go for those type of women. He went for women who were instead very easily manipulated, very vulnerable and really desperate for money. And when you're in that state of mind, you know, you're already, as you said, vulnerable and then you're getting paid £20 for all that at the end of the night. It's just going to crush your spirit and your self-esteem even more. And it encouraged them at times. Some of them had addiction problems and he encouraged that because obviously that kept them more subservient to him because they needed money. Um, and then it came more extreme. So the women started off doing topless cleaning for him. Um, they were doing other things and they were doing sort of sexual services for him. They were, you know, doing sex acts on him. He was paying them sometimes 15 quid, 20 quid. Like there was no money passing hands at all. Then he says, oh, you can make hundreds if you do other work and that included what he called escort work but it was basically you know you know very poorly paid prostitution and he was taking these women to meet men who he was advertising online he was in charge of all their social media one said she didn't realize she was on like two or three different escort sites because she had never advertised herself there he was in charge of it he was taking the calls he was making the bookings but what he was doing was you have these sites and you have women who are paid you know lots of money, they're in charge of their own bodies, they're in charge of their own agency, they're they're operating in a very high-end apartment sometimes in city centres. He was offering unprotected sex for very little money and you can see how there's a certain type of man would respond to that that ad. So 
On one of the occasions, the woman said she was taken to a place across the border. She'd never been across the border in her life. She didn't know where she was. Um, and taken to what was a party where she was expected to have sex with numerous men unprotected. And by the time she had finished, you know, and managed to escape the clutches of Martin Haney, she had quite a serious sexually transmitted disease, which she was told would have an impact probably on her future fertility and all sorts of other things going forward. So he really was using and abusing these women. The court was actually told, and probably one of the most shocking things was, that one of the women, the young woman, became pregnant during this time. And rather than... than Releasing her from his clutches, he used that to his advantage and advertised that on sites with people who had fetishes. He wanted to have sex with pregnant women and kept her working for him right up until um, near the end of her, her pregnancy. So that just gives you an insight into the sort of mindset of this man. These women weren't to him people, they weren't his friends, they weren't his employees. They were just objects that he was using to make as much money from as he possibly could. So how did he actually become known to police? Well, he would have been, he came to the attention of police given the fact that he was featuring quite regularly in the Sunday tabloid papers under the sort of mucky, you know, Marty title and the fact that this guy was seen as being, you know, some sort of a deviant or danger to women. But what actually happened was it was the money laundering section of the business. Remember, he was making extreme amounts of money off these women and paying them a pittance in return for the for what they were doing. He was pocketing the vast majority of it and he was being investigated for that. And that was when all these recordings and videos were discovered. And then police started the very slow process of trying to identify these women. You know, I would say as a security a journalist is my job. It's all our jobs to hold party account in the police often are criticised for their actions and rightly so if it's in relation to something they've messed up. But this case, I think, was textbook policing. You could see that it was a detective inspector, um, Rachel Muscali, I think was leading the operation. They forensically took these apart. They contacted these women. This case to me always had hints of almost what happened in Rotherham where you could see women who had no agency, women who were, you know, um, out of the car system, women who had no family backup, women who were very poor, were being exploited. And in that case, the police did not protect those women from predators. But in this case, you know, if you look at the case that was put together by police, it was forensic and they really did try their best to get as many of these women as um, on board as possible. And in terms of his actual arrest then, because I heard that he was arrested outside Mass, um, which is just completely ironic, someone going to a place of faith. Um, you know, can you talk me through that and, and the process of actually getting him into court then? Well, yeah, this this was reported by our, our sister paper, The Sunday Life, that he was actually arrested by police on his way out of Mass by the, it's it's called the Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking Unit, and they had been waiting on him and arrested him as he came out of Mass. That is not unusual, I have to say, as, a, as you know, as someone who reports on crime, you often find the people who do horrendous crimes are the people who are also the ones who are at their church service on a Sunday or who are assisting and volunteering sometimes in, in church activities. There's a juxtaposition, I don't know, as whether they justify what they are doing in that way. But yeah, you'll find that, you know, going to um, any prison and go to the, the, the Sunday services on a Sunday and they're very busy. And in court, did he show any sort of remorse for what he did? Well, he no, he did plead guilty and he pleaded guilty for very good reason because the charges against him were almost double what he eventually pleaded guilty for. He made a, a sort of deal with the prosecution that he would plead guilty to some of those charges. And, you know, people don't like prosecution deals. They always think that, you know, it's, it's um, justice not being served. But remember, that then meant that he was able to be convicted and jailed without those women having to come forward and give evidence. I think it's important just to go back a few steps here to how these women were actually contacted. None of them contacted police to make a statement against him. 
What actually happened was the house he was living in, in Dremore, his house was raided. And in there, they found hundreds of recordings. These women were being brought back to this house to have unprotected sex with men. And he was recording it against their, not against, well, not against their wishes. They just didn't know. Yeah. They weren't aware that they were being filmed. I think it was quite clear from the, the video and that it was covert and it wasn't being done, you know, with, with any kind of participation from men in it. And then the police had a very difficult job of sitting around trying to identify who these women were. Some of these women, because they had lived incredibly dysfunctional lives and they were in and out of car, they were known to police, and so they were actually able to identify them quite quickly. And then by going to those women, then they were able to say, well, that is my friend, or that is... And some of the women stills were taken off their faces, obviously in a way, you know, showing what it was they were doing. They were sent around an internal system with the PSNI. I have to ask any other officers and some of the community officers were able to say, oh, yes, that's such and such, you know, she's homeless. I would talk to her in, you know, in the street sometimes and they were able to identify them. They contacted as many as they possibly could identify. But some of those women were never identified. We'll never know who they were. We, you know, we'll never know the true extent of the amount of victims. And in the end, they managed to get 12 women to make statements out of, you know, the dozens that they, they contacted. And that was how they were able then to finally get him into court um, and get him convicted. He had been remanded since he was arrested. So that's obviously probably where the other sort of controversial aspect of this story came from. During the last mandate of the Assembly, there was um, people trafficking legislation passed that was welcomed by everyone, and, and rightly so. Um, and Martin Haney was the first person ever to receive one of the orders underneath that. So it was like a people trafficking order. You know, I was in court while that was being read out and the conditions of that were extremely stringent. You know, if he had a phone, he had to tell police what the number of the phone was. If he had contact, you know, with any woman at all. He had to inform them of his past and not just that, inform then his probation officer who that woman was. He wasn't allowed to be in a car with any woman other than a relative. Um, and he wasn't allowed to access sites that were offering personal sexual services as well. But the, the custodial part of the sentence was five years, half of which was to be served in prison and half of which was to be served on probation. Given the amount of time that he had spent on remand, he had his full sentence served and he did not even go back to McGabry from the court. He literally walked free from Laganside Court that day. Um, I spoke to some of his victims that afternoon. They were quite distressed at that. They thought that he was going to get a significantly longer sentence. But it turns out that while that legislation was passed, sentence and legislation, the review of sentencing that was proposed by Naomi Long has not yet taken place. And obviously, I don't need to remind everyone that we don't have a working executive at the minute, so it's not going to take... You know, that legislation isn't going to be passed anytime soon unless we do get a working executive. So that was really at the top end of what the judge could have given him the thing about it is, is he was released into a hostel in the city centre. The police called to do a welfare check and they checked the phone that he was using and he had been accessing websites offering sexual services and he had been accessing them within three days of being released from prison, um, which doesn't exactly suggest he was someone who was showing remorse for what he had done. Or I honestly still don't believe that he thinks... He told police when he was arrested he was helping these young girls, you know, he thought that he was, but I don't think that he honestly believes that what he did has such a, a detrimental impact on their lives and the future of their lives. You know, when I spoke to these women, they would only speak anonymous. They're ashamed, not that they should be, because they're victims. They're embarrassed. Um, you know, they told me some of the things that happened, but in some of it, you know, they clammed up and went, I'm not going there, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, they were distressed by what had happened to them. 
I think that they were relieved that he had been convicted but angry at what a short sentence he had received but as I said that was all the judge could give him but remember that second part of his sentence that other two and a half years to be served on licence he has now breached that licence within three days so he is currently back inside back in prison and the parole officers have asked that that be considered if that is considered he could then be forced to then serve the other two and a half years of his sentence which is outstanding on probation or at least a portion of that so for now he's off the streets and he's behind bars but eventually he will be released and it, you know, I like to think that everyone can be rehabilitated in some way or another, but I'm not quite sure that there's any rehabilitation for Martin Heaney. So do we know anything about what his time in prison was like? Yeah, well, he did on remand over two and a half years in prison, which is why he was released after being sentenced. But, you know, from what prison sources are saying, he spent most a lot of his time in his cell. He didn't really interact with a lot of the other prisoners. And also what I found most interesting was this man who had set up this huge network, you know, that was involved in exploiting dozens of women that clearly had hundreds of men on his books um, that was supposed to have been making these vast sums of money, did not in his entire time in prison have a single visitor. Not one person visited him in those two and a half years he was there. Um, which in some ways I suppose just the sort of sad nature of his existence this man who thought he was going to be some sort of Hugh Hefner type porn king he ended up you know sitting on his own in solitary in a a cell in McGabry and realised that all those people on the outside um, that there were no friends you know that this this was the end of the road and you know maybe that's a fitting punishment for someone like him As well Alison just because he has been known for so long um, and I know you're saying that the police did brilliantly in this case. There was a video that the Sunday Life also uncovered of a father, I believe, of one of the women, one of the victims, cornered him. And he said, you know, everyone knew. He claimed that everyone knew what he was doing. And I think maybe in his head, perhaps he thought that was justifiable. Come on, Hedy. Do you should be ashamed of yourself? Ah, the lies that you've told. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that he evaded justice and conviction for so long? Is it just he was too slippery to actually pin down? No, I, th- I think in these cases you need uh, witness testimony and remember what we're dealing with here. So you're dealing with men who are doing something illegal. They're they're buying services off a of woman who they're exploiting. And remember what, what annoys me about this case is that those men, some of them I think we see cautions, but none of them were prosecuted or fined for exploiting very vulnerable women. Um, they are men who, you know, probably went home to their wife and children at the end of the day after doing what they were doing. Um, they're clearly not going to come forward to police and make any statements. The women themselves were genuinely terrified and also women who, you know, just were extremely vulnerable and felt that maybe they would be in trouble if they came forward to the police. So, yeah, the investigation really only gathered speed whenever they were able to gather the information from his house and then start to trace the women and find that some of the women were willing to make statements and come forward. Some of the women identified other women, so they went, well, I did... Like, one of the women I know, she said, she said, I did the topless cleaning, but I didn't do the prostitution, but my friend did. And so she was able to contact her friend and she came forward and spoke to police. And that was heart was pieced together. It was an incredibly complicated investigation. But I do think that there's a wider question for society as a whole as to how they view women. You know, um, whenever we write about prostitution in any way, you get so many people 
online who seem to try and justify it with a sort of happy hooker, you know, yeah. myth that these are all women who are having a great time, you know, they're making loads of money, you know, it's so brilliant and all the men are lovely to them and everything's great, um, you know, and that sort of high-end sort of prostitution is a very small part of that industry. The majority of it involves exploitation, you know, for migrant women who have, have you know, no agency whatsoever. Women like this who, you know, some of them I can't even begin to express how vulnerable they were in terms of, you know, these were women who, if you're shopping in the city centre, you'll see begging in a doorway. They were the women that Martin Heaney was targeting. You know, women who had no ability to come forward and speak for themselves. So you can see how difficult it was to piece that together and convince them. I think they're very brave. The 12 who did come forward, imagine what that took to be able to say, this is what I did. Because they had to say what had happened before there could be a conviction. So... You know, um, I only spoke to a few of them, but to all of them who cooperate with that investigation, like they have to, you know, commend themselves that they eventually find their voice and be able to speak out. Do you think as well, because I think in Northern Ireland, because we're such a small place, people think, oh, this sort of thing just happens in America or in England and it's the sort of things they see in the news or in movies. Do you think this is the shock factor of this case has shone a light on how common this actually is in Northern Ireland and, and with, you know, local people, like he was a local man. Yeah, and he could have been, I mean, I went up to where he was living in Jamore and it was the most, you know, normal street you can possibly imagine. You know, people with nice neat little gardens and, you know, window boxes outside their door and, you know, there was people pushing prams up and down the street. It was, you know, a normal residential street and yet behind closed doors in that house that he was living in, he had cameras set up in a bedroom. He was bringing men through that house who were having unprotected sex with very vulnerable women. He was videoing them. He was posting some of the, the, the videos online. Um, and all of that was happening in this, you know, tiny little terrace house in the middle of Jamore. So, no, you I mean, I wouldn't. I do think that people like to think that it only happens in big cities. And it's nothing to do with me. But, you know, um, you know, this, this happens everywhere. And the fact is that we're talking about a, a supply and demand industry. So while there is men who are willing to pay money and exploit very vulnerable women in this way, there'll always be people like Martin Haney who are willing to supply them. Do you think, Alison, what sort of help is out there here for, for women who have been victims to that type of abuse? You know, not enough. You know, I know that Women's Aid have been really trying to work with a lot of women who have found themselves in very difficult situations. There are some other agencies who, who try and look out for them, but not enough. You know, one of the, the young women I spoke to had went on to go back to education and she was now working on a good job and the difference between her and I think and some of the others was that she had family support. She says at one stage she knew she'd been groomed. It only dawned on her one day that everything he was telling her was lies and her mother eventually, because he wouldn't leave her alone, took her phone and said, you know, do not ever contact my daughter again. But she was probably the only one who even had a mother. He was able to do that for her. Most of them had nobody. Um, and I do think that we also need to, as a society, not, you know, I think there's too much stereotyping of young women who find themselves in this situation. And the question has to be asked, you know, how in a country such as this do we allow women to get themselves in such a desperate situation that this is the only way that they think they can feed and clothe themselves, you know, and that is another question, you know. And as well as that, what we've been talking about, I suppose, lately in terms of addiction services and the real problem that there is with drug addiction in the city centre, you know, you need to address the root causes of that kind of deprivation and desperation because if you don't do that, well, then there'll always be women who are vulnerable and there will also always be people who are willing to exploit them for their own financial gain. And finally, what is 
the best outcome that the public can hope for in terms of Mucky Marty sentencing? Well, the parole commissioners have now asked that it be reviewed, that he shouldn't be released on licence at all. So if that's the case, he has over two years left to do in prison. When he comes out, his um, trafficking order, which is very specific said, um, type of order, as I said, he's the only person in Northern Ireland currently in receipt of one. That lasts for seven years and we could see that that actually worked because within, you know, within a week he was back in court again. Police are, you know, as long as they keep on top of that and monitor and make sure he's abiding by the circumstances of that. But, you know, when that runs out, he will only be a man in his 60s. He still poses a risk to other women. But what we also have to do is make this conversation more open so that women who are being exploited like that don't feel like they should be ashamed or they have to hide, that they can come forward, that they can, you know, seek help, will that be it with someone like Women's Aid or with one of the other women's groups, or that they can come forward and report to police if they think that they're being exploited like this. Because that's, you know, in this case, the women had to be sought out. They didn't feel that they were able to come forward originally. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's, it's an indictment on all of us, society, that they felt like they were somehow responsible for what had happened to them when they were just complete victims. Alison Morris, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Neve Campbell, and sound engineered by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from BBC Radio Ulster and The Sunday Life. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.